Let me uh, say a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, hallelujah be to your name. May the refrain of that song be the heartbeat of your people as we gather and worship tonight and tomorrow. May you be exalted and magnified in our pursuit of you. I pray that you would pour out your spirit in this place, Father God, and especially commit your spirit to me in these next few moments as we look at the scriptures, Father God. Acknowledging and recognizing that I am just merely a weak man and that if anything happens of eternal value, it happens because of your Holy Spirit. In our hearts, in our souls, doing the work that he does to bring us deeper into your embrace. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. That is Isaiah 55, the first few verses of Isaiah 55. And the, the plea, I'm sure you all caught on to this, of Isaiah 55 is very simple. It is come. Come. If you're thirsty, if you're hungry, if you're poor, if you're broken, if you're sorrowful, if you're alone, the invitation is the same to every single human being who hears it. It's come. That's the message of the beginning of Isaiah 55. And these verses present the reality that there is something, this is amazing, that exists in the universe that is capable of satisfying the heart of man and fulfilling our soul's deepest longing. Something that we can come to has no price, has no cost, yet it can give us what our souls truly need. Not just physical things like water, milk, wine, or even bread, but God says here, life. What we need. Come to me, he says, here that your soul may live. That's the promise of Isaiah 55. Not just satisfaction in what is good, like rich food and rich drink, but this is a promise for the life of our souls. And it's a promise that isn't found in some physical object or some idea, some abstract concept. This is a promise that is found in a person. And we know that because Isaiah 55.3 says, come to me. The promise for our souls to live brings us to a person. And if you were with us last week, uh, as we began our journey through John 6, you may have some kind of inkling who this person is. If you recall, last week we were looking at how Jesus fed 5,000 people at least, likely way more than that, and then he proceeds to walk across the Sea of Galilee during a windstorm to save his disciples, all of which shows us this, that 
in Christ, every need you and I have, every fulfillment that we seek in this life, every kind of satisfaction that our souls yearn for, even the ones we don't recognize or even understand or comprehend, all of those are found in Jesus Christ. That's what we saw in the opening verses of John 6. We saw an infinitely sufficient Savior who isn't just the provider of everything that we need, but he himself is our very provision. He is the sufficiency that all of our souls seek. And that's the very person that Isaiah 55 is talking about. God in Christ Jesus, our ultimate provision, no matter the circumstance, no matter the trial, no matter the tears that we are experiencing, Jesus is enough. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John 6, verse 22. We're going to continue our journey through this amazing chapter probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, to be perfectly honest. To get you up to speed before we read, Jesus has arrived with his disciples, disciples at the city of Capernaum. It's a coastal city on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. He's crossed the sea after doing this extraordinary miracle where he creates food out of nothing in front of thousands of people. And uh, they were about to, verse 15 told us, take him by force to make him king. But when that's about to happen, Jesus leaves. He just splits. And this passage we're about to read is really the aftermath of him leaving in response to their desire to to take him and to make him their king. So we're going to pick up in verse 22. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're seeking Jesus, which, I mean, on the surface, I hope you agree, sounds like a great idea. Um, What we see here is that the crowd recognized basically that the 12 disciples were gone. They'd left in their own boat. They'd left for Capernaum. Jesus hadn't gone with them. He'd gone up to the mountain after dismissing the crowd. And yet it's clear that some of these guys, some of the crowd remained there. I would speculate the most zealous people who wanted to see Jesus again, the people who were going to take him by force to make him their king. They, they remain there and they do the math. They're like, where did Jesus go? What happened to him? And so as boats from the coastal city of Tiberias show up at the shore, the crowd that remains there gets in the boats and they go to Capernaum seeking Jesus, which all feels very positive. This is the kind of language we want to see, people seeking Christ. But if you were here last week, you know that this kind of seeking isn't necessarily indicative of true, authentic, real, sincere seeking. This kind of seeking may well be insincere and futile, which we see in the next two verses. Look at verse 25. When they found him, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, 
but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So this is Jesus' response to their seeking, which is kind of alarming. Because I think we often, at least I do, often assume that any kind of seeking, Jesus is good and right. But Jesus apparently does not share that assumption with me. This kind of seeking is wrong, and he points it out very clearly. They ask him, how did you get here without a boat? And he ignores their question. And then he, 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 he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and that is a, a signal of the gravity about what he's going to say, these two words, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs that point to who I am. And now you really desire me. That's not why you're seeking me. The signs here that he's talking about that they saw was him feeding the 5,000s and probably much of what he had done before that. They had seen these signs and instead of wanting him, they had become fixated on what those signs could get them. And here it was full stomachs. Jesus could create food at will, which is amazing. And that's why they're seeking him. They want him to meet this physical need for their bodies. And to be certain, to be very clear here, that isn't a bad thing. To want Jesus to meet our needs is not a bad thing. Much of the gospels are comprised of encounters that Jesus has with people who need physical things in their lives fixed. Coming to Jesus to meet physical needs and hunger is easily the most basic and universal need on the planet. Coming to, those, to Jesus for those kinds of things is never wrong. However, if Jesus is only a means to an end, if he is a genie in a lamp, if he is only the giver of gifts, then we don't see him as he really is. We don't see him for who he really is. The point that Jesus is making here or the point I'll make here, and then we'll see Jesus make it later, is that we should bring every need to Jesus, every need to Jesus. But if his value is rooted in us receiving what we ask from him whenever we ask it, then we're seeking not him. We're seeking what he can provide us. That's the distinction. And this is a careful distinction to not be satisfied in who he is, but to be satisfied in what he can do for us. The last thing I want you to walk away from here with is the assumption that, uh, that you can't ask Jesus for these things. You can absolutely ask him for these things. And we should do that every single day. The Bible teaches us to do that. But we should always do it with reference to him not being simply a means to an end, but being both the means by which we get what we need, our daily bread, and the end. He's, he's, he's the provider of all that we need, and he is the provision at the end of the day. But Jesus sees through this with the crowd here. He's looking at these people. They've followed him across the sea. He sees right into their hearts. Whenever I see Jesus do this in the Gospels, it's staggering to me. Jesus knows us perfectly. There's not a single thing about you that he does not know perfectly. He knew exactly what was going on in their hearts right when this happened. And he sees right through it, which is very important to know about him 
because he's still pursuing us despite those things. Despite all that he sees, he still loves us. So in their pursuit of him, not because they love him, but because they want food, he returns and responds to them right off the bat why this kind of pursuit is eternally devastating. Listen to him in verse 27. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus is telling them where to focus their attention on, where to to, to guide their hearts to. They're working right now in striving and seeking a food that perishes, that will be gone one day, that has an expiration date to it. It is merely physical provision. And he's saying, don't work for that food. Don't work for that food. He doesn't obviously mean that it's wrong to physically work in this world. It's wrong to do labor. That's clear from the rest of the scriptures that we're called to work and to physically do work in this world to get food and to get provision. That's not what they're doing. They are pursuing this food as ultimate in their lives. And Jesus says, that's not the most important thing that you should be pursuing. What is most important is the food that endures to eternal life. That's what we fight for. That's what we work for. That's what we strive and run for. The food that endures to eternal life. In other words, what you work for in your life matters eternally. And this is true about every single human being on the planet. No matter what your vocation is, no matter what work you do in your life, no matter your daily tasks, how menial they may feel to you, it matters eternally. There is eternal significance because for the Christian, woven in everything we do on a daily basis must be this pursuit that Jesus is talking about. Pursuing what food endures to eternal life. In Luke 13, 24, we have this scene where Jesus is describing to people, he's teaching people and he's giving them a command. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive, he says. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. So that narrow door of Luke 13 is the eternal life of John 6. Many, Jesus says, will one day seek to enter this narrow door, but they'll be shut out. They won't be able to get in. And so while you're here, he commands his disciples, strive. The, the Greek word here is agonizomai. And it means to, it's where we get the word agony from. It means to struggle, to, to, to fight, to do everything in your might to enter that narrow door, to work for this food, which John tells us here that only the Son of Man can give to us. Jesus says in John 6, he says, on the Son of Man, the God the Father has set his seal. And what he's saying here is that in Christ, there is an exclusivity. He is the only one who can provide us this food. He's appointed by God and only Christ can give it to us. And therefore, when we think about working for this food, and I'm going to unpack that in a little bit, we think about it in relationship to Jesus, in relationship to Christ, because on him, God the Father has set his seal. This is a seal of authentication. It's a seal of authorization. It's like 
Imagine a, a king in his signet ring and he's pressing it down into a seal on an envelope. Except the envelope here is his son in the human form, Jesus of Nazareth. And we saw this in John 5. Remember John 5? All that Christ does ultimately is show us who the Father is. That's what this seal is. And therefore, Christ alone is the only one that can give us his food. The crowd hears this. They hear Jesus say this. This is the kind of food that you work for, the food that endures to eternal life. The Son of Man can give it to you. And they say this. Listen to this, verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So just track with this. Think about what's going on here. They have all the evidence they need about Jesus. They have all that uh, in front of them. They see this man and they got all the pieces they need to say that's the Messiah. They just saw him feed 5,000 people. They were going to take him by force to make him king. They can see in those signs his messianic reality. And, and so his reference earlier to being the son of man who can give this food that endures to eternal life isn't some vague idea. The words son of man appear in Daniel 7 about the Messiah. It is a validation that he is the one that they're looking for. He is the man whom God has appointed to judge the world, his own divine son, bearing the seal of the father. That's Jesus's point in the previous verses. Um, but look at their question. Look at what they ask him. What must we do to be doing the works of God? This isn't about him. They've taken it and they've made it about themselves. This isn't about Christ. This isn't about their glory. Think about this. Before them is standing the one for whom all things exist. And they're concerned about what is it exactly that we have to do to get this bread? It is a transaction to them. It is not worship. It is not awe. It is not delight. It is, what can I do to get this bread? That bread sounds awesome. It sounds excellent. We are hungry. What do we have to do to get it? And Jesus tells them, here's the work of God. The work of God is that you believe in him whom God has sent. And so Jesus, his response to them is very simple. Believe in me. Believe in me. Believe in the one that God has sent. And we already know that true, authentic faith in the book of John, from the very first chapter, John 1.12, is receiving him. It's, it's wanting him in your life. It's receiving and embracing him and his glory. That's what faith is. And Jesus is taking their attention. He's trying to redirect their focus from physical bread to his own reality. Don't be preoccupied with physical things. You're looking at me. God the Son. Don't be preoccupied with something even as essential as hunger because you're looking at me. As much as you desire food right now, you should desire me even more. Receive me, he's saying. Believe in me. And of course, their response is going to be, absolutely, we will believe in you, Jesus, right? 
That is not their response at all. Look at verse 30. So they said to him, to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Referring to Moses in Exodus 16. So this response is not great. I hope you saw that it's not great. (laughs) It's not a good response. He just told them believing in him is the only pathway to eternal life. And their response is prove it to us. Prove who you are. Even after all that just happened, that's the response that he gets from these people. 5,000 human beings at least were fed the day before from five loaves and two fish. And they, they want another sign. I mean, they pursued him to Capernaum, but they want another sign. And they quote scripture here uh, to get that sign. They're referencing the event that we briefly mentioned last week. Uh, this scene in Exodus 16, where God provides manna from heaven for the people of Israel as they're moving through the wilderness from Elim to uh, Mount Sinai. You can read about it in Exodus 16. It's an amazing text. And this event not only shows up in Exodus 16, but it is referenced and repeated throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Nehemiah 9, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, this constant reminder in the scriptures of what God did in this one moment in history where God graciously provided food from heaven. And they're saying, listen, Moses did this for us. If you're the true king, if you're the true Messiah, if you're really the son of man that you say you are, why don't you just prove it to us? Why don't you just do this, Jesus? And we'll believe you. We'll believe you. And I think like us looking at it 2000 years later, look at this and we think it's foolish given that, I mean, they just seen him with their own eyes do this miracle on the mountain. Why do they need another sign? But keep in mind that Jesus isn't what they're seeking ultimately. They want bread. You're not seeking me because you saw the signs. You're seeking me because you're, you want, you were filled with the loaves. You want more food. They don't need more evidence about who Jesus is. They have plenty of evidence. The fact of the matter is that they're not here for Jesus. They're here for his stuff. And this is raw human nature. And what I, what I do when I get to a text like this is I turn it to face me. And I ask myself, is this the same way that I treat Jesus sometimes? Even a believer who trusts him and who loves him. And I think about it. I mean, maybe in a season of trial, we're desperately pursuing him. I mean, you've all been through difficult situations in the past. You know how this works. We're in prayer all the time. We're, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. It's all about him during that season. The trial passes, and it's back to Netflix. It's back to mindless recreation, some game. We got what we need, Jesus. Thank you very much. Stand to the side. We're going to enjoy life. We'll downshift to what is comparatively a Christless existence. And this, to be sure, recreation is not a bad thing. Recreation is a gift from God. And we are called to to rest and to have ease in in certain seasons. Um, But that's not what this is. His point, the point here is, in a lot of ways, we are just like this people. 
In a lot of ways, we, we will focus on Christ when we need something from him, when we have a crisis, but as soon as it's gone, we're going to push him to the side. Don't need you anymore. And I think oftentimes we wonder, like, why is the Christian life so filled with suffering? Like, why do we suffer so much in the Christian life? Why is it so, why does scripture paint this picture of, of Christianity as being a struggle so much? And the bottom line is, he loves us. That's why there's suffering in our lives. He loves us and it is more vital for our souls to see him, even if it's through tears and trauma, than it is for us to be blind to him and just coast in ease. That's hard for us to hear. It's hard for Americans to hear. <laughs> that sometimes suffering is an act of love from God. For his children, it always is. So this is the same basis that their question comes on. Meet our needs and we'll believe you, Jesus. And Jesus responds with a corrective adjustment in verse 32. Look at what he says here. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So in, in, in response to this request for another sign, like manna from heaven, Jesus says this. He says, Moses wasn't the one who, who gave the people of Israel manna. He didn't give you, Moses wasn't there. He's revealing an error. And the error that they had here was that Christ, in their minds, was another Moses. Remember what they said earlier? This is indeed the prophet who has come into this world the, Moses was the one who foretold a prophet who would be just like them. So they're thinking, Jesus, you're just another Moses. That's why they asked for a sign. Their idea of who Christ is doesn't evoke in them worship or love or affection. It, it, it only evokes a desire for them to be fed, for him to give them what he can give them, which is why Jesus this is amazing. His response here is amazing. He shifts gears in the middle of his response. Notice how he begins this sentence with this correction. He says, it wasn't Moses who gave your father's bread in the wilderness. Moses didn't do that. And then he doesn't go where you think he's going to go. You think he's going to say, God gave the, the Israelites bread. He doesn't. He transitions and says, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He leaves Exodus 16 in the dust and he brings it right in, into now. This is about you. This is about right now. He corrects their misunderstanding and their misappropriation of scripture and he brings them into the reality that's facing them right now. When God gave the bread in Exodus 16, it was only a sign for what's going on right here, Jesus says. The person standing in front of you right now. And so Jesus is drawing their eyes from hundreds of years later to the true bread, the bread of God who is staring them in the face, but they don't see it. They don't see him for who he is, which is why they respond in verse 34 with this. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And so again, they're thinking in terms of bread that can make their stomachs full just like Moses had, but that's not what they need most. What these people need most is Isaiah 55. 
the passage we read at the very beginning. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. They don't need more bread. They need the bread of heaven. This is about life and death. It's not about physical bread. It's about our souls living. It's about the bread of God that comes down from heaven to give his life or give life to the world. And Isaiah 55 tells us of this person who comes down. It's a person we need to come to. It's a person we need to receive from. We need to hear from, which is why Jesus responds in John 6.35 with this staggering statement that we peeked at a little bit last week, but I'm going to read it now and unpack it for you. Jesus said to them, and there's no way that they can mistake it now, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is Jesus' response to these people when they ask him, give us bread. He says, do you want bread? You want bread? I'll give you the true bread. You're looking at him. I am the true bread. Bread exists in this world mainly to point to me. Only secondarily is it for food. So come to me. Believe in me. He tells them anyone who comes to him, anyone who partakes in this bread of life will not hunger again. Anyone who comes to him and believes in him will never thirst again. That's his promise. And he's not referring to us literally stopping drinking and eating, but rather something far greater. The deepest longings of our hearts are met in Jesus. The greatest needs that you and I have, have been satisfied in this Christ by coming to him, by receiving him, by embracing all that he is. This is the life that he's talking about in this passage. This whole passage, when he, when he uses the word life, he's talking about this. Verse 34, the life that he gives to the world. Notice in that text, it's not just reserved for the people of Israel. He's talking to Jewish people in this context, but this is life that, it, that, that he gives to the world. It's a life that is freely offered to every person on the planet. Every person. Isaiah 55 goes out to come receive. It's freely offered to all people. The bread of the manna of Exodus 16 was just for the Israelites, but Jesus isn't that kind of bread. Jesus is the son of man. He is the savior of the world. He is the one who God has set his seal upon. And Jesus is saying that the divine provision of manna that allowed Israel to survive 40 years in the wilderness pointed to what God would do through him, through Christ, the bread of life, so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can survive forever, eternally. That's the whole reason for that scene in Exodus 16. And this is the heart of the entire encounter. It's focused on the eternal life that we have in Christ. And a few verses later in verse 47, we'll cover... Uh, what, what comes in between next week and the weeks that follow, but God willing. But um, I want to look at this, what he says in verse 47 follows, because he removes all ambu- ambiguity on everything he's just said. He, he, just, he, he lays it out so clearly that it is unavoidable to, to see. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes 
has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is saying to them, I'm the bread of life who's come down from heaven. I'm not like the manna your fathers ate. They died. They died. To eat of the bread that I'm talking about is to live forever. It is to possess eternal life. And so in this text, he is He is weaving together these two realities, believing and eating. They're not separate things. They're the same thing. They're the same thing in this. He says, whoever has, whoever believes has eternal life. And so the the reality he's creating here with this word picture is that the act of eating true bread from heaven is the act of believing him. It's the act of receiving him, treasuring him, holding him fast, taking him into our souls as good food, And to be clear, like we saw earlier, this is not receiving him on our own terms, just how we would like Jesus to be. This is receiving him for who he truly is. That's what it means to eat this bread. And so going back to what he said earlier, for Christ to say, work for this food, work for the food that endures to eternal life. He's not referring to a way that we earn or merit by doing anything. He's referring to fighting to believe, believing and trusting in God, striving to believe, laboring to believe. He's saying, you need to eat this bread every day, not as a way to earn anything from me, because you can never earn anything from God, or merit, I should say, anything from God, but that Christ would have us war in our own lives against our instinctive and and broken preoccupation with the things of this world. That's what he's saying. Instead of seeking those things, seek the bread of life, this living bread that we call Jesus Christ. Think about this. It it is not a struggle. I had ramen, uh, was it last night or the night before? I can't remember. It was not a struggle for me to go get ramen. It wasn't. It was really easy. We desire th- food in this world. We, we, have, we have a hunger for it naturally. We don't have to work up the desire to eat. You just find yourself hungry and you eat. We do that automatically. It's easy to indulge in this world, not just food, but all things that are in this world. Um, some of it we need. We need food. We need clothing. Much of it that we indulge in you would agree we do not need. And yet it's easy for us to indulge in all of those things instinctively and automatically and work hard, labor hard for them to stay in our lives. And Jesus is saying here, don't give your life to pursuing a food that perishes. Don't make that ultimate to you. There is an expiration date on all of it. And not only that, it will not give you the life that the true bread will give you. And so he's saying, give yourself to that. Make that your life's pursuit in your Bibles every day, praying, seeking God continually, saturating your heart with this bread. 
not as a transaction to get to heaven, but as a means to seeing Christ for who he really is. Jesus says in verse 51 that the bread that he gives for the life of the world, the true bread is his flesh. And we're going to learn more about that in the coming weeks, God willing. Uh, But I want you to consider this for me, that in order for Christ to be the bread of life, in order for him to, to, to be the bread of God that comes down from heaven, the flesh he gives here is the same flesh that died on the cross. The flesh that bore our sins on that tree so that we might have eternal life. That's the flesh he's talking about. The flesh that was torn open by a crown of thorns on his head. The flesh that was pierced by iron spikes when they pinned him to a tree as God's justice and wrath crushes him for all of our sin. I want you to think about what kind of love are we dealing with here in this true living bread? What kind of compassion, what kind of mercy, what kind of grace that the living bread who has never had a moment of not only any kind of touch of death, but he's been perfectly sinless for all eternity. He steps into our dying world filled with dying people. And he takes all of that death into his flesh until he dies. That's the love that we're dealing here with this true bread from heaven. And when we see him as that savior, as that Christ, as that Messiah, and we embrace him in all that he has done for us in that moment, you are eating the bread of life. That's what the experience of eating this bread is like. We call it faith. When we see him as the savior that he really is. Christians in this world, people who follow Jesus, people who trust Christ have really, we want to be simple about it. One job. We have one ultimate job. We, we have a lot of other things we do in our lives that are important, but they're all second to this one job. No matter how critical they are, no matter how important they are, they come second to this job. And th- the job of the Christian is to eat this bread every day. To wake up and to eat it, to eat it before bed, and to do that every single day of your life, to eat the true bread. Because when we do that, we are embracing him, we are trusting him, we are loving him, and we are doing that to the only thing that can give us eternal life. That's the invitation of this text, which I think takes us back to Isaiah 55. And so in a few moments during this next song, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper. Um, There are single-serve communion cups out in the hall if you'd like to participate. Um, And if your faith is in Christ, you are welcome to do this. Before we do that, I want to read for you Isaiah 55, just the first few verses of it. And if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes. Uh, I want you to realize that this is Jesus saying this to you. I I don't want you to think it's just me. It's not me. Jesus is saying this to you in John 6. So let me read read you this text and realize that this is Christ's invitation for you right now today. Come, everyone who thirsts. 
come to the waters. And he who has no money, you especially come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Jesus is saying, do not labor for what perishes in this world, but labor for what endures to eternal life. And I know we use the words eternal life a lot. We should be using it in church. It's real. But please do not grow numb to those words. Do not grow numb to those words. There is no joy that you have ever experienced in your life or ever will experience in your life that can compare to one millisecond of this eternal life. Let that sink in. That's what Jesus is talking about here. A kind of love that our Father will give us through Christ, through this bread of life, is, it is a kind that is without comparison. It is incomprehensible. It is, it is unfathomable, and it will literally take you all of eternity to compass. So every day, let's eat this bread that our souls may live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so glorious. And the depth that is just in this single chapter, John 6, is mind-boggling to me. And I pray that in the time that we have here, Father God, that you you would bring us all the way to the bottom of its glories, that we would see all of it. And I ask right now for your grace, because I know that it's not, this is not anything that we can do on our own ability, our own strength. I ask for your grace through your Holy Spirit to come and to work in us in such a way that we long for this food, the true bread from heaven, more than we long for anything else in this world that he becomes our joy. He becomes the focal point of our lives and that we are willing to sacrifice in part with anything in our lives that would keep us from coming to him and receiving him for who he is. As we sing and worship, as we participate in communion, Father, I ask that, that the reality of Christ, that he is with us in this room, that the living bread from heaven is here and we can come to him and receive him in faith that that reality would be felt by every person in this gathering and gather tomorrow, Father. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.